sing as one for this country we're walking on we stand together to protect this land for the future we're hand in hand welcome to another episode of the environmental as anything podcast the following program may contain traces of irony, sarcasm, satire, parody, mockery, banter, caricature, and nuts. The opinions expressed are almost certainly not shared by self-appointed officious dictatorial wowsers. If you are dangerously irony deficient or allergic to mockery of the self-important and corrupt, then get a life. And this is Environmental As Anything. Welcome back for another jam-packed show full of all the news, interviews, and analysis that we can fit into three hours uh, for you uh, on our Mother Earth Thank you to Monkey and the Fish for the theme music. We love uh, Monkey and the Fish and we love the uh, hand-in-hand theme music. So, as always, thank you to them. And thank you to the Bundjalung Nation for hosting us all here in their country. Uh, we're in Widgeable Wyable country here uh, in the, uh, to, in, to the uh, River FM studios. And uh, that uh, is a great privilege and uh, always wish to extend respect to elders past, present and emerging and acknowledge that this country has been stolen and uh, 65,000 years of ownership uh, is not extinguished by uh, the fiction of Terra Nullius. So thanks for the tolerance that uh, the Bundjalung Nation have uh, extended in their hospitality to us all here and... uh, our commitment here at Environmental as Anything is that we're working hard to try to right the wrongs of the past and make the future better. This week on the show, uh, really looking forward to having uh, Rob Garbett coming in to talk to me about his conversations with the river, some beautiful audio and a beautiful artwork that uh, that he's, uh, he's going to be uh, sharing with us and, uh, and, and talking us through. That's very exciting. Um, also uh, very excited to be able to play for you an interview I did last week with David Shoebridge. I should say, uh, sorry, last week uh, we, we, we weren't going to air last week because uh, there was uh, lightning had struck our transmitter. In fact, it struck both our transmitter and our backup transmitter uh, through uh, some freakish mishap and uh, left us with only the stream, so we uh, resorted to the pre-recorded show last week. Check us out on Facebook at Environmental As Anything. Strangely enough, look us up, like us, share us with your friends. We want to be able to share the word, uh, give people as much of the good news as uh, as we can, spread that around because we are in the midst of an extinction crisis but uh, you know we are also in the midst of an extinction rebellion and the uh, the world is changing quickly around us and and uh, you know not only for the worse but many many positive signs of the community banding together to build a better future for ourselves and for our children grandchildren and all of the living things and peoples of this planet of ours this fragile blue planet so where was I? Oh yes, I have a fantastic interview I did last week. Was going to put to air last week for uh, with David Shoebridge, who is an MLC, an upper upper house member of the New South Wales Parliament, uh, and a, a Greens uh, a member, 
and uh, talking about the uh, – he, he is the chair of the Public Accountability Committee there in uh, Parliament. Uh, the crossbenchers pull, pull, punch way above their weight in Parliament. They, uh, they are tending to volunteer, uh, to stand up and be, uh, you know, be counted on those committees and uh, that means that they can actually ask the difficult questions of the those in power and David uh, Shoebridge has certainly been rising to that challenge uh, he has been exemplary in that role and has uh, he gave me a really good interview explaining what's been going on uh, we played a little bit of audio of him in Parliament uh, grilling uh, Porky Barilaro a couple of weeks ago. If you're a regular listener, you will pro- possibly remember that. And uh, we'll be looking forward to uh, hearing also later on in the show from Eve Sinton from the Fossil Fool Bulletin and uh, talking us through the, uh, the major stories in the Bulletin again out this month. Fantastic publication. Look up the Fossil Fool Bulletin uh, while we're on air if you like, if you want to get informed about what's uh, what in the uh, the collapsing world of fossil fools. Uh, it's uh, it's some exciting reading there. Some some challenges to be faced and some some real positive uh, uh, news about uh, regularly coming out about the the uh, the industry being abandoned by uh, the finance sector and uh, the the the, uh, the leaders, the democratic leaders around the world, rather than obviously not the corrupt leadership that we have here in Australia, but uh, but many of our. Uh, our public uh, officials are actually doing the right thing and uh, preparing for a rapid transition from fossils into renewable prosperity. That's great news too. So we'll be hearing from Eve Sinton on that. I'm Sean O'Shaughnessy, in case you're wondering. I sometimes forget to identify myself, but there you go. And it's not anonymous commentary here. Before I do move on, I like to just get a bit off my chest every week. There's a week between our, my little visits to your home and uh, I, I, I get, uh, you know, things happen in my week and, uh, and, and I don't always get to tell you in a timely manner, but it, it, they, 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 they irritate me. Things, some, some, some things irritate me and I, I just need to share them. So please bear with me for a moment because I've had my phone now. I mean, we all own phones. It's, it's mostly most of us are, are, are hooked. Some some staunch individuals uh, refuse to be uh, to be hooked into uh, the the world of mobile phones, and 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 kudos to you if that's the case. But I don't know how I'd get by without my phone. It it, it is a universal device that uh, can look up anything I need to know. That can play me music. That can act as a guitar tuner. That's just the main reason I bought it originally. And, uh, you know, it sends me messages, it sends, uh, you know, all sorts of goodness and all sorts of irritants at times. But my phone, it's perfectly good for all those things that I just listed, except that it has got a bad case of planned obsolescence. Somehow, uh, well, not somehow, by careful and, uh, and aggressive design, the, uh, the, 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 the nasties uh, who manufacture these phones and the, and the companies who uh, can, connive with them to s- deliver the software that runs them work it out so that you can't... Your, your phone has got a, a shelf life way shorter than its actual useful life. 
Like you can continue to use the phone. There is absolutely nothing wrong with the hardware, uh, the, the, it, 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 but it is incapable now of doing the things that it once could do. Like when you bought it, it was perfectly capable of doing the things you'd want it to do. But now for some reason, it stopped being capable of doing so. And that reason, it's called planned obsolescence. What they do is they get uh, a bloat, software bloat. They install a whole heap of software you don't need on your phone and they don't let you take it off. That's one of the, the key strategies they have and that software continues to be upgraded and you'll hear me using air quotes around that word upgraded uh, in order to make it bigger, more cumbersome and uh, but no more useful to us. Uh, every week or two or month or two, it's, uh, it's constantly being upgraded and that means that uh, your phone... Although it's still the perfectly functional device that it was when you bought it, it might have a few scratches, it might have a little bit of a crack on the screen like mine does, but really perfectly functional uh, bit of gear for all the things that I listed and many more. And yet, uh, by design, it's made to not work anymore. And I've, I just find it infuriating. Aside from the imposition of the cost upon me personally to have to think about going out and spending hundreds, if not thousands of dollars on a brand new phone... There is the obscenity of the, the, the waste of resources which is, uh, is incumbent upon me to engage in if I want to be able to continue to use this uh, very useful device. I mean, it's addictively useful, isn't it? <laughs> and I, I don't object to how useful it is. I just object to the fact that it's not uh, feasible to be able to, or it seems unfeasible, to be able to continue to use uh, a device which seems to be continued, continue to be useful other than its, uh, its, its d flawed design ethics, the unethical design that, uh, that these multinational corporations impose upon us uh, is, uh, is disgraceful. So what I'm really looking for is if anybody out there can help me find an ethically designed phone. A phone which is actually designed to be sustainable. I have seen some uh, out there, a couple of uh, ones, but I'm really wanting to get a broader range as possible of uh, the uh, the ethical design options uh, for phones because, you know, there are uh, there's no doubt in my mind that a phone should be able to be upgraded. I should be able to take out, uh, well, I should be able to delete the software I don't want from it for a first and I should be able to, Upgrade the uh, processor if it needs it. Upgrade the memory if I if it needs it. I can change the micro SD card in there. Why can't I change the memory chip in there? Uh, it's perfectly feasible. I mean, we've just human humanity has just landed a uh, a, a self uh, an, an autonomous rover on the surface of Mars. And, uh, and, and it is now up there sampling rocks and checking out to see if there is any life on, uh, on our, on our uh, nearest neighbour, or not our nearest, but our, uh, our closest relative perhaps in the solar system. And yet somehow it seems that uh, the great engineers of the human race are not capable of ensuring that these very valuable uh, bits of equipment actually last more than like really on average about a year or maybe two for most people. I think I've had mine for three. As I say, quite like it. I would be perfectly happy to have gone back two versions of this uh, phone and use, continued to use the old one that was, uh, that was also perfectly adequate until it was forced out of uh, useful life. Anyway, just an appeal to the listenership. Can you help me with uh, access to 
an ethical phone. I mean, I've I've reached out to you previously about my uh, sustainability woes with the uh, with my printer, and I may have found a printer uh, repair shop for my printer, and I may be able to get it done. And I'm I'm looking forward to hearing back from them with a uh, a final quote. But that took a lot of work. I can tell you what it's the brother have not helped to make their printer in in any way sustainable. They have made it extraordinarily difficult and uh yeah i'll let you know when i uh when i actually get uh get the goods when i get the good results who it is so if you need to you can go to these guys and get the uh, uh your, your printers repaired repair uh, reuse you know the right to repair these are fundamental aspects of uh you know sustainability and uh, they are you know these these ridiculous uh systems of uh, of waste are imposed upon us and and it really is high time that we stood up and said enough is enough anyway enough is enough of me uh having a bit of a rant thanks very much for listening in i uh, i do appreciate uh, sharing that with you I feel much better now. Anyway, I did promise you a special guest today and I have with me uh, right now Rob Garbett, who is uh, an artist uh, working on uh, the, uh, a project called Speaking with the River. Uh, this is uh, uh, an exhibition which is going uh, opening at the uh, Northern Rivers Community Gallery in Ballina on March the 11th. So that's uh, in a few days' time. Yeah. Uh, it says here, uh, throughout Australia, rivers bring life to the land and its peoples to different and often competing ways. Reconciling Indigenous environmental and business interests in rivers and river systems is a complex task requiring new ways of thinking and the bringing together of many voices. Rob, welcome to Environmental as Anything. G'day, Sean. Thanks for coming in today. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, yeah. no, it's, it's a great pleasure. Yeah. I was so glad to bump into you the other day yeah. and find out about this project. It's yeah. very exciting. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a great project. It's, um, uh, there's a group of us at Southern Cross University called LabX. It's sort of environmental arts, um, humanities, activism, all sorts of things like that. And uh, so uh, one of our projects has been on... Uh, on rivers and thinking about rivers and the many ways in which we speak with rivers. Mm, uh, mm, so mm. often we just speak to them, yes, you know, yes. rather than with them. So, yeah. so they've got to be spoken about and, and, and shut up and not heard. Usually, yeah. <laughs> a piece of infrastructure that's really useful, mm. like, you know, it could be uh, as a water supply, as a drain, mm, uh, mm. you know, transport, I guess, recreation, mm. you know, we thought, sort of think about the uses of rivers, but mm. uh, also I guess what we're interested in, well, what I'm interested in too is rivers in and of themselves and what their environments are like. What they have to say for themselves, the conversations that we can have with them. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, Yeah, just bring them to our attention. And so this exhibition at at Ballina is is just about, is about that, bringing the river, especially the Richmond River, but other rivers as well in general, uh, Clarence, uh, and bringing that to 
you know, people's attention and in, engaging people with, with the river. Mm. Yeah. Mm. yeah. I mean, especially here in Lismore, I think it's a, it's a terrible uh, tragedy in some ways, the way that uh, Lismore turns its back on the river, that, it, that it's, it's, it's the central feature of its, of its geography. There's so many ways in which Lismore just tries to ignore its, the, the river's yeah. existence. And I see that in plenty of other river towns, especially where they're flooded. They tend to feel as though the river is a, a threat to them, but they don't look it upon it as, you know, for the beauty that it can, that it can bring to your life. Absolutely. Yeah, mm. and yeah, I think you know historically, I guess Lismore has sort of been the river's the, part of the reason for its existence. Mm. But when that transport link sort of was severed with the railway coming and, mm. and roads, um, we did tend to just turn our back on it. There's been attempts to get us back to the river, mm. but sort of doesn't last long, mm. you know. Mm. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I actually bumped into a mate this morning. Told me he bought a new boat and was talking about how the excitement. He was with real genuine visceral excitement of like, like get on the river and and go and check it out. Check I've been living out. in this town yeah. for twenty years, yeah. and why do I not exactly do yeah. that? I got. I mean, I got interested in in this whole thing because having drinks at the uh, at the bolo, uh-huh. uh, you know, Lismore City Bolo, yeah. and uh, and the the bamboo. Ah, yeah. There, that's sort of next to the, along the path there. Mm -hmm. And just the sound of it in the Mm -hmm. wind. And that's Mm -hmm. what what sort of really drew me to it. And then I got started to get interested in riparian zones. And so that's where my exploration has been as sort of, okay, what's, what's going on in this place and let's get to know this. Yeah. Well, it is an audio. Aud- that's one of the reasons I got so excited about meeting you the other day. Is it is very audio oriented, uh, you know, conversation that you're uh, you're attempting speaking with the river and hearing the river. And so I'm going to play a little section here. This Sandy Creek Royal Camp State Forest uh, 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 audio. You've given me a few bits and pieces of audio, and so I'm going to play them and get you to talk over the top of them. Right. Just give it yep. give it a few seconds so the so the audience can hear what's going on, and then we'll have a chat. Hey. So, uh, so what are we listening to here, Rob? Okay, so we're um, out past Casino, uh, heading down towards Busby's Flat. Take a right turn onto a little sort of logging trail and uh, looking for a spot where we can get down to Sandy Creek. Mm-hmm. Um, and it turns out we're in Royal Camp uh, State Forest, which, uh, you know, later on I discovered is quite a significant place uh, environmentally. Um, it's one of the areas that's, that's well forested along, along in, in the river catchment, in the river catchment. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is one of the tracks which is part of a sound map that I'm creating for this exhibition. So it's a, it's a long map along a wall and uh, you can sort of activate different places along it with these sensors, sort of put your hand near it and the, and the sound starts playing. And so this is one of the tracks from that. So, Look, your listeners might be better at knowing what that bird was. Uh-huh. Uh, I, I actually don't. <laughs> but I guess what um, what was interesting for me in this place is that the fire, I, I recorded here April last year. Fires have been through, um, mm-hmm. like, you know, what would it be, like five months beforehand or so, yep. you know. Yep. And um, I was quite amazed. While, while we can hear that, that bird and there's been a lot of other activity, I was also quite amazed at 
how little was actually going on, yeah. to be honest. Yeah. Um, and so what I often do is, uh, as part of my, my recording practice is to set my recorder going with some microphones, set it going overnight, mm-hmm. come back next morning and, and just see what I've, see what I've got. So, um, yeah, so I, what I know is that uh, since being there is that this is actually a significant koala habitat yeah um it's been logged and koala trees have been taken out of that area um and uh and so i guess in each of these recordings there's a little sting in the tail so Mm. there's some beauty Mm. but there's something else going on Mm. which uh i guess is the other part of of this getting people's attention is sort of okay well where is that what is it about Mm. you know and uh and without you know hitting people over the head with stuff. It's not about that necessarily, but just, you know, involving ourselves with the river. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it feels to me like um, you're, you're helping people to be transported to a place, you know, with this, yeah. with this interactive map that you're describing. And, yeah. And these, and these, you know, they are transporting these little snippets of audio. They really bring you, a, you know, a real sense of those places yeah. in, in a way that, you know, any kind of verbal description or a vis- even a photograph doesn't necessarily give you That's that. That's right. It's that sort of the, the audio, you know, like we know when we, um, we go travelling, often it's the sound of things that really sort of tells us we're somewhere new, you know. Mm. It's part of the sight and sound thing happening. It's, it's a multi, multi-layered experience, yeah. Absolutely. Well, I'll play another piece and see how, okay. uh, see how that affects us and what we have to say about that. So where are we now? Okay, so now we're in Casino. <laughs> a totally different environment. This is um, this is Gable Weir, which is uh, the weir which uh, uh, holds back the water in the, on the Richmond River. It's Casino's water supply. Um, and this is from uh, a recording from February this year. The drought sort of just we got a whole lot of rain. And the drought, so that first, you know, a lot of the recordings I did were in drought. This was sort of some rain and I thought, okay, a weir, that sounds like an interesting place to go. Never been there before. And when I pulled up, like on the road, I got out of the car and I thought, oh, what's that sound? It's just a roar. And so, you know, it's sort of like, wow, that's, it's hitting me in the guts like a big bass you know, wow. it does, yeah. and uh, and I, and so, so I was just fascinated by that sound. I guess I'm I'm really interested in interesting sound, and mm-hmm. and that that weir was just pumping. Uh, there's a fish ladder there. Oh, right, at, at the weir. Yep. So that the the cod and and fish can migrate up the river. Well, there was no way those fish were going to get getting up that ladder <laughs> right, that, that day. You know, it was it just Olympic like, standard sport. <laughs> it, would up be, there. it would be serious swimming. You know, <laughs> against the tide because it was just pumping so much. Yeah. But um, yeah. So I guess you know this is one of those sites. You know, we depend on the river for our water. Mm. Casino just a month before that had been wondering about its water supply. There was concern over the quality of the water because of blue-green algae. Um, And here it was that it all changed with the big fresh in the river. But you could get the sense of how much water comes down the river, Mm. you know. Mm. Yeah. Glorious. That's glorious. And to capture that moment for posterity in that audio form, that auditory form that people can can really relate to. Yeah, that's right. 
So uh, this one, uh, this one here is the uh, retention pond at Southern Cross University. Yeah, this is a spot that uh, I've sat and enjoyed a couple of reflective moments from time to time. Yeah, and I'm sure a lot of people in Lismore look forward to these kind of built environments. This isn't isn't really a, like it's so much of the natural uh, sort of river system, is it? It's more of a part of a you know fairly yeah. structured, highly structured environment. It is a highly structured environment. This um, this retention pond, I guess, has been actually part of flood mitigation strategy. Mm-hmm. So the, the retention pond at Keller Street at Southern Cross University, just there, and the lake itself mm-hmm. is sort of built there to sort of slow down the flow of, of water from that catchment um, uh, for flood mitigation purposes, but also for irrigation at the university. So there's a they have a pumping licence for the playing fields, so we rely on that water for, the, for sport, uh, for the rugby field and, and all that area, um, and heaps of frogs. So you know the striped marsh frog loves this place, yeah. and uh, and they're just going off, yeah. along with you know other you know some uh, I guess uh, swamp hens, a whole range of sounds around that. The odd cane toad. Yeah, right. You know, so that, like I say, there's always a little bit going on, and and you sort of none of these environments are. I guess what I try to do in my recordings is not, well, well, sort of show the beauty. And there's actually a lot of beauty in a cane toad call, you yeah, know. Yeah. It, it, but at the same time, uh, I don't keep them out because you know it's sort of like not about making it beautiful. It's just about okay, what's here? What do mm. we hear? Mm. You know, what what do we tune ourselves into? So that mm. idea of attuning ourselves to environments is, is really important. Yeah, you know, like you yeah. can always uh, impose your values on something and filter out things that you deem not to be acceptable or unwanted, but but in fact you miss out on, on something important when you when you can't just accept it for what yeah, you're saying. Yeah, yeah, and that's, that's one of the things that um, I learned early on from... There's a, another field recorders, so there's this group of nerdy people like me who <laughs> call field recorders. Uh, Leah Barclay, who's a sound artist um, up on the... Uh, uh, sunny coast, and um, her thing was, you know, uh, accepting what's there because you mm. often go to a site expecting something, mm. and in fact, what you expected isn't what you get. And uh, yeah, so yeah, so it's also an exercise in coming to terms with stuff as well. You know, all of this. Yeah, yeah it's, uh, that's that's interesting. Uh, that ex- expe- uh, accepting the unexpected. I like that. That's yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, um, we should. Uh, there's there's actually a few more, a few yeah. more pieces here. This one's from the uh, Bagotville Barrage in Tucky and Broadwater. Yeah. What's okay. This, what's this environment like? So this is a really interesting environment, as many people would know. Uh, Tucky and Swamp was one a huge a huge wetland, um, uh, one of the largest wetlands on the Richmond River catchment, um, if not the largest. I'm not sure about that. There's but um, uh, let me think. This is hydrophone recorded. Uh-huh. So we're under the water, yep. and uh, this is fish grunting, uh, fish drumming, <laughs> and all other m- sort of, I guess, uh, macro invertebrates calling to each other underwater and communicating. Uh, and that's on on one side of the barrage. And this barrage is designed. Um, to stop the inflow of salt water into all the drained 
swamp. Right. So the the bag so Tuckian swamp has been drained, a lot of it's converted into sugarcane farms, tea tree, all sorts of things like that, agricultural land. And um, this this uh, this barrage stops the tide coming up, the salt water going up and just lets the, the fresh water out. Yeah. And it's a controversial piece of equipment. Yeah. Again, there's this, uh, this, this part where, where human usage uh, meets the environment seems to be like a, a big important sort of tension that you're, you're drawing yeah, attention exactly, to. Yeah, exactly, exactly. I sort of, not always did I intend that, but it turns out that everywhere is. Probably hard to avoid. Yeah, <laughs> it's hard to no, avoid. We're, we're, we're part and parcel of our environment. And, you know, as, as a lot of um, listeners would know, you know, the, the Richmond River catchment itself is, is a very poor, poorly, poor environment, you know. Uh, yes. It's, river, it's got a D plus, I think, in a, in a survey that was done back in 2014 by UNE mm. um, overall. And, and there's very few one of par- the worst One of the worst rated river systems in, in New South Wales. It is. is it it's one of, the, one of the worst in New South Wales. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. yeah. And so um, it's a degraded system throughout, which means uh, to, a, to most most purposes i guess you'd say um the degradation sort of is us Mm, mm. yeah or at least uh the practices (laughs) and patterns of usage that we've uh, yeah that's right exactly the way we speak with the river the wonderful thing about uh, all of our environmental threats and damages is that culture is is changeable isn't it when we understand our impacts we're quite capable of actually changing the way yeah yeah and you know at the barrage i guess there's controversial issues. Some groups, Ozfish, for example, is wanting to sort of, I think, get rid of that area, uh, sort uh, of rethink about, you know... Uh, letting the swamp take a more natural uh, yeah, form. Yeah, mm. of course, you know, thinking about recreational fishing, but it's also about environments mm. uh, because mm. a lot of people, uh, fishermen especially, know the changes that have happened in that estuarine part of the river. Yeah, you know? interesting how closely aligned uh, the needs of uh, fishermen and environmental, uh, you know, the interests of the environmental uh, environmentalists are really absolutely. Like it's often seen as you know you're one or the other, but in fact, the reality is that it's, it's both. It's like, it is. like, yeah. like you're finding with this crossover between We're human all... and environmental. It's, exactly. it's all woven together. Yeah. Well, this is the last one we've got: Richmond River Ballina, and this I love this underwater excerpt. I love that you, you <laughs> said the the grunting and the drumming of fish yeah. that we heard from one of the under. It sounded like an uh, like an aquatic rock concert to me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, they're all going off. Yeah, yeah. So this is another one from the Richmond River, but you can actually hear some human uh, usage yep. noises, I think, in here. Yep. Here we go. So is that a boat or something going by in that's the background? That's that. That's uh, an outboard. Yeah. Yeah. And then what you can hear there, a snapping shrimp. Right. So, a lot of um, a lot of uh, recording in 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 salt water is dominated by these guys um, because they're everywhere. They're quite noisy. Yeah, they're quite noisy, and their little nippers have this sort of special little thing where they there's this sort of like a a gadget goes into a hole and snaps back, and in that snapping back. Um, an air pocket forms in the water and it releases a sound. And so they're, they're amongst some of the loudest 
critters out there for their size, <laughs> these snapping shrimp. What, do they have – is it done for a purpose? Is it, oh, is I it imagine so. I don't, I don't know what the purpose is, yeah, but right. they're obviously talking to each other. Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. And, uh, and – oh, actually, um, Sean, now I think about it, so you're jogging my memory, one of the reasons they're also doing it is to stun prey. Oh, right. With the sound of this this right. sort of acoustic so, thing. So yeah. micro-organisms uh, yeah, in, yeah. in the water. So sound goes through water just like yeah. it does through the air. It goes through faster. And um, and so, yeah, this recording, I guess, down at Ballinawell, there's the outboard as well. So that's another aspect of um, a lot of people who are interested in, um, in recording with hydrophones. There's a lot of oceanic sound recording going on at the moment as well and, and environmental work um, in science is around... Um, well, anthropogenic noise mm. in these environments and especially um, in oceans and inlets where uh, uh, marine mammals especially use them as, as, um, as sort of key environments for breeding and, and that type of thing, uh, as well as just getting around um, the noise that from shipping and uh, also from um, geological surveys and, and, you know, that type of stuff that's going up on underneath the water and blast to yeah. see if there's any oil down there and yeah. stuff like that. Yeah. All that type of sound is uh, is pulsing through environments, mm. Mm. and uh, we're not aware of it because it doesn't get through the interface yeah. between the the water and the air. No, um, and and we don't necessarily hear this stuff. Mm. But every time, you know, as soon as we w- we drive our car over a bridge and those pylons go into the water. Mm. Down in there, katunk, 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 katunk. It's making a lot of noise. It's making noise. Yeah. Everything we do, the pumps we stick in the river, yeah. everything like that is 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 uh, is part of the environment that fish and all these other things are are experiencing every day. So, so you know, there's a lot going on down there mm. as well as the snapping shrimp. You're pulling <laughs> pulling back the veil for us, mate. That's really fantastic. <laughs> Thank you, Rob. Look, uh, I'm, I, we should wrap it up, but before yeah. we do, quickly should say what's what's the story with the exhibition? When and where? And who's involved? And, and yeah. okay, what's, what's do we, what do we Good tell? One. How do people get Good there? One. Yeah. Thanks for that, Sean. Yeah. <laughs> um, so this is speaking with the river. It's on from the 10th of March till the 2nd of May uh, down at Ballin, uh, sorry, North Coast Regional Gallery, which is Cherry Street, Ballina. Um, the LabEx group from Southern Cross University is putting it on. It's got work in there from historians Adele Wessel and Joe Kyges, uh, artworks from Francis Bell Parker and Anique Goldberg, um, and uh, also from science media types, Grayson yep. Cook and Amanda reichel Prichette. And, uh, yeah, I've got a sound map in there as well. And I think, uh, yeah, so there's a whole lot of stuff happening. It'll be an interesting exhibition. It'll get people in on many levels. And, uh, yeah, I'm, check it out. I'm, I'll be down there. That sounds yeah. fantastic. A, a nexus between science, art and history yeah. and media. Uh, what, what, what more could you want? Really? Exactly. Yeah. All right, Rob, thanks so much for coming in to Environmental as Anything and sharing that with us today. It's been a pleasure. Thanks so much, Sean. Anytime. We'll have to talk again soon. Okay. Eh? No All worries. right. Thank you. That was Rob Garbett uh, from LabEx talking about the uh, Speaking with the River uh, exhibition happening in uh, the Northern Rivers Community Ballina, uh, Northern Rivers Community Gallery in Ballina uh, on March 11th till uh, May 20th, I think he said. Well, 
I've just placed uh, on the Environmental as Anything Facebook page a link to the Speaking with the River exhibition that uh, that Jeff Garbett was just kind enough to come in and talk us through some of his uh, contributions to. So, uh, yeah, go and check that out. It's got all the details there. If you missed the details uh, on air, you can uh, check them on our Facebook page at Environmental, environmental as Anything. Next up, have, would you do you ever feel that there's uh, there's really no hope for our politics that uh, that politicians are universally a bunch of corrupt and incompetent scumbags who you know really would make great lamppost decorations? Well, don't despair. There are decent uh, politicians in our parliaments working hard and doing good for us all. Uh, David Shoebridge is one of them. I've been really impressed with what I've seen and heard of David Shoebridge so far. He seems to be a man of great integrity and uh, and intellect. He's a man who is uh, capable of uh, uh, of asking hard questions in a civil manner uh, w- without flinching. So uh, he has uh, joined Environmental as Anything uh, last week. Uh, we, I spoke to him about... Uh, he's the chair of the Public Accountability Committee in the New South Wales Upper House, and he has been exposing the bushfire rorts uh, scandal uh, for us all. And, uh, yes, so, so take hope, uh, look up. There are, uh, there are good ones out there, and David Shoebridge is one of them. Here he is talking to me for Environmental as Anything. David Shoebridge, thanks so much for joining Environmental as Anything today. Yeah, my pleasure, Sean. Good to be here. Your inquiry has been exposing the depths of uh, the pork barrelling that it seems to be endemic in the New South Wales uh, Berejiklian government. Uh, what, what, can you give us a bit of background on what you found and how, that, how that's all come up? Well, the inquiry started by looking at um, a quarter of a billion dollars, a bit over $250 million that um, uh, the state coalition government uh, handed out to councils. 95% of the money went to councils in coalition held state electorates in the nine months leading up to the last state election. And um, we, we found out about that particularly offensive misuse of public money um, initially from an inquiry that I had from a from an individual resident in a uh, council in Sydney I'd worked with on other issues. She couldn't work out how a million dollars was being lavished on one of her local um, ovals, which she said was in pretty good condition already and <laughs> no one had asked for it. And then all of a sudden there was a million bucks. Um, she, she said it had something to do with stronger communities. So, so we started hunting around. We could find no public reporting on it, a few little local media stories. Um, and then we targeted that in budget estimates. We targeted it through the powers of the upper house to force the release of documents. And we suddenly found it wasn't a little thing. That's when we tallied the numbers up. And I, I distinctly remember getting a bunch of documents going home one night. And thought, oh, we'll just, you know, do that work on stronger communities. And I started adding them up. And I came up with like $256 million or $252 million. And I thought, oh, I'm surprised I haven't heard about this before. <laughs> and, um, um, and of course, you know, it's a, an effort by the state coalition to buy the election in the lead up to the March 29 election. That was pretty apparent. They pissed a lot of communities off with their forced amalgamation pushes at a local council level, and this was their way of buying vape. Um, 
then we, um, you know, that's there's been a, that's been quite a saga. The, the government said they had no documents. The premier denies her obvious role in it. The deputy premier denies his obvious role in it. Uh, the minister of the local government denied her obvious role in it. The uh, chief executive officer of the office of local government denied his obvious role in it. It turns out that um, nobody actually made this decision. <laughs> um, nobody, if you accept the government's line, nobody made the decision about where to where to funnel the money out. It was all done through some smoke and mirrors. So a quarter you know, of a billion. Uh, just, just, just to put that, just to summarise that a little bit, a quarter of a billion dollars of New South Wales taxpayers' money uh, goes out the door, and nobody knows about it. It's just, it's just a big mystery to everyone. Nobody guessing. knew. Nobody knew, and nobody knew you could apply for it. Nobody even knew the money was available. And so it turns out that there were some um, political staffers in the premier's office who basically went out and tapped on the shoulder. Um, a bunch of coalition MPs and said, got a bit of money here. You might want to approach a local council, um, see if you've got anything that they want funded. And um, that's how it got out. The um, $90 million went to just one council um, for two parks. Um, and they'll be nice parks, no, no denying it. <laughs> but the general manager, well, you'd hope so, wouldn't you? Um, <laughs> the, the general manager got a call like on a Tuesday night that a council meeting, I mean, this is Hornsby Council. And uh, the Office of Local Government calls up, the head of the Office of Local Government calls up and says, oh, look, I've got 90 million bucks. Um, can you um, just uh, raise it with the council tonight and get confirmation that they want this $90 million for two bucks? And the general manager says, 90 million bucks? Um, have you got any paperwork? Uh, have you got anything I should see? He goes, oh, no, don't worry about that. Don't worry about it. We'll, we'll get you all that tomorrow. We'll fill in the application form. We'll sort it out. We'll get it tomorrow. We just want the approval from the council. So he goes into council and says to the council, hey, guys, do you want 90 million bucks? They said, yep, we'll take 90 million bucks. And um, the next day they get emailed the the application form, notionally their application form, all filled in by the Office of Local Government, just two lines, 50 million for this, 40 million for that. Um, he goes to sign it and then his chief finance officer says, well, hey, 90 million bucks, we should have some, you know, reporting. We should know what we're going to do with it. You know, we it's 90 million bucks. And um, they call up the Office of Local Government. They say, ah, don't worry about it. Don't just sign it. Get it back to us. So they signed it, got it back to them. And um, within 72 hours of that first phone call, 90 million bucks in the bank. So that was the first one. Um, yeah. That stinks. That stinks. It sure does. It sure does. Uh, no, no merit assessment of the projects, no comparative analysis, no opening it up to everybody to see where the money could do most good. It's literally just highly politicised, um, gross abuse of um, uh, executive government. So that that that, that raised my um, raised my hackles. I'll be quite frank. Um, you know, I'm chair of the inquiry, the Public Accountability Committee inquiry that we've gone through and interrogated all the officials on that and you know i'm left with the conclusion that it was just a, an obscenely politicized abuse of um office and public money so we had icac who were you know when we sketched out the nature of the um the arrangement um icac's in principle statement I mean, they weren't judging the project they made it quite clear but when i said if you had a grant scheme that had these features and i described the features as we knew them of the stronger country communities what would you say about that and I can accept words to the effect, well, that's you know, likely to be corrupt conduct. So is there likely to be inquiry further from ICAC or other authorities who can actually, you know, prosecute for such conduct? Mm. 
Well, of course, I've provided those papers to ICAC um, and they've had further information requests and I've provided all the information requests to ICAC. Um, ICAC have a policy um, and it's a good policy of um, um, not making a statement before they've made a determination about whether to undertake an investigation. They don't do that publicly. They often have, you know, further investigations and communications with um, other MPs or whoever's referred to it and they ask those MPs and others to also treat that as confidential. So um, um, that's a matter that ICAC will, um, will make a public announcement on at, when they're ready to do it. And, In due and course. But yeah. following on due process, uh, you know, like, a <laughs> like fair yeah. enough. Yeah, so, I mean, I, I suppose a lot of the anger at the moment, though, isn't about that fund. Um, no. It's the bushfire. Uh, yeah. Bushfire yeah. Recovery Fund that's getting people a bit exercised at the moment. Obviously, uh, there are people still living in tents after having their homes burnt down. There's been swathes of the countryside, uh, you know, destroyed in this apocalyptic fire. A billion, uh, you know, native creatures, uh, you know, killed in the process. And, uh, yeah, so there was $177 million assigned for bushfire recovery. And what's going on with that? Well... Remember the timing here. So this is at the end of November, this round of last year, this round of funding was announced and it was a mixture of state and federal. And it came just after the Premier had defended pork barrelling when she was, you know, she was doorstopped about it. She was said, it was about this other scheme, the $250 million council scheme. And she was saying, well, you know, what, what do you say to the charge that this is pork barrelling? And she basically said, ah, everyone does it. You know, it's just politics. And, and I, I've got to say there was a lot of community anger about that. And, and within a couple of weeks of that announcement from the Premier, we get this fresh round of funding announced, this time by the Deputy Premier and one of his um, federal colleagues, because it's a mixture of state and federal mm. scheme, that the state government, well, so far as we can tell on the information on the public record, the state government identified the projects and then the federal government approved them. So it was a two-stage process. Um, and... Um, it turns out when you analyse that funding, uh, less than 2% of the funds went to any Labor, uh, Greens or Shooters, Fishers and Farmers um, electorate in regional New South Wales, um, overwhelmingly going to coalition electorates. Mm. Um, we had we have we have two electorates up here. I'm in Lismore right now, and Ballin is just next door. And Ballin have got nothing. Uh, Lismore got grants, two two grants, a small percentage of the total fund. And uh, our local uh, uh, representative uh, Janelle Saffin on this show last week told me that she had absolutely no knowledge of the two grants mm. that were given out to timber industry uh, operations uh, somewhere in the electorate. So yeah, be... neither of those grants really responding to that desperate community need. Mm. People have lost their homes, have lost their business, um, uh, you know, the directly and um, immediately impacted by the fires. And um, the, th those two grants really weren't addressing that pressing human need. And, and poor old Ballina didn't get a single dollar, even though they had a real hit to their economy, uh, one of the biggest hits to their economy because of the fires. They had, um, I can't remember the exact figure off the top of my head, but something in the order of, even on the government's analysis, something like $80 million of economic loss out of the fires and they didn't get a single dollar. And so far as we can tell, nobody knew that they could apply for this $177 million rapid fund. Um, somewhere like the Central Coast, 
they had, um, and again, this is the government's own numbers, um, they had more than $160 million in economic loss, really smashed. About 7% of their economy got knocked out by the fires. They didn't get a single dollar. Um, you know, they were all largely labour electorates in the Central Coast. Ballon obviously is a Greens electorate. Mm. And you go to the Blue Mountains, and we've all seen images of the Blue Mountains. Two megafires went through the Blue Mountains. Huge amount of infrastructure and homes and um, uh, economic loss put into one side the, the devastation of nature. Mm. I didn't get a dollar. <laughs> and, um, um, and, you know, I, I couldn't believe it. The, the initial... We'd had a number of concerned inquiries about what projects had been funded um, in between November and uh, the 26th of January, um, and, um, and and had been on our radar. And we'd had a look at them. We couldn't work out, for example, someone had complained about a a roundabout, a three million dollar roundabout project in Yamba, and they said, "Well, Yamba wasn't hit by the fires. How does a three million dollars going towards a roundabout in Yamba relate to um, bushfire recovery?" And well. We said, we can't see that. We'll, we'll investigate that further. We had somebody else say, well, there, there was a $3 million seawall in Nambucca being built. And um, you talk to firefighters and they describe the Pacific Ocean as the great Pacific fire break. You know, they say nothing gets past it. <laughs> nothing comes from it. No, I was going to say, there's, uh, I, I, did, I didn't uh, hear anything about the Pacific Ocean burning during the fires as much as there was fires. There's nothing. No, no seawalls were lost. Um, and you'd say the same about a you know a couple of million dollars that was spent uh, given to a, a, mar- a marina expansion down in Ulladar. You know, these weren't the parts of the state. They're not facilities that were damaged by fire and they've been showered with money, um, uh, all in coalition seats. Mm. Um, None of it related to bushfires. And meanwhile, you've got people who, you know, living in caravans, living in tents, their businesses destroyed, you know, whole towns. I mean, places like Cabargo and stuff smashed. Um, Blue Mountains smashed, they don't get a dollar. So those individual cases troubled us. And then on the 26th of January, an independent journalist um, uh, published uh, an initial analysis of the $177 million. And and, and credit to Michael West and his team, they... um, they did an initial analysis and um, which showed this very big bias towards the coalition. We shared that analysis around. We then pulled all the, the data and did our own analysis and we largely agreed, not 100%, but we largely agreed with Michael's analysis. And um, and then we said, enough's enough. We blew the whistle, we put it out. We said, you know, of all the things to uh, politicise, bushfire relief, disaster relief funds, it was, it, was a, a, it was a bridge too far for us. It beggars belief, doesn't it? So, so uh, where do you expect this to to end? I mean, I, we ran the uh, the footage last week on air, or the the audio from your from your Facebook feed of you uh, grilling Porky Barilaro about uh, the people living in tents and uh, what what was going to happen to them, and him just coming up short with of any empathy for them at all. But where do you mm. see this heading now with uh, with this government? Do you see there, this being a, a, a you know a wormhole? you've fallen into is this an endless supply of of, of you know impropriety and, and corruption well i mean it pretty much i mean our inquiry has looked at the stronger country communities at council funding grants we've looked more broadly at how councils are um um being i think very badly served by the current grant structure across the board in new south wales um and i'll give you just one figure that'll be of interest to your listeners um um lismore council um, like councils across the state, they can only really survive 
um, get their infrastructure paid for, some of their big projects paid for, um, because they've been rate capped forever, they have a quite a constrained local revenue base. The only way they can survive is by grant funding, federal grant funding, state grant funding, and and it's critical. But at least more council because you know they're quite effective at doing their grant funding. Um, they 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 have a you know a small team that apply for it. Um, they bring in other resources to apply for grant after grant after grant after grant after grant. They, they often have to keep rolling the same application over year after year after year after year after year, after year to, a, to a particular um, grant pool because they may not win the first year or the second year or the third year or the fourth year or the fifth year and they eventually get it. And they spent um, on their figures, they've done some analysis, the better part of three quarters of a million dollars of ratepayers' money just managing that process. The application, the, um, the acquittals, the reporting, the identification, and um, you, you 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 roll that out across the state, and you realise how grossly inefficient it all is. And then you you double all that, of course, because the state government is also then managing the whole process. Um, so uh, hugely inefficient. We've had concerns about art funding, uh, museum funding. Um, you know, in that case, highly politicised interventions from the minister, contrary to all the, the best advice from the um, from the bureaucrats about where the funding should go. And now we have the bushfire funding. Um, and on the bushfire funding, we're, we're, we're using all the tools at hand to try and get some accountability on this. We've got the inquiry going, we have the deputy premier there. And also I put a motion through the upper house to force the government to release all of the documents about how they did these assessments, if, if that's what you'd call them, for the bushfire funding, mm. because there were no criteria available, no public announcement of this round of funding. Nobody really knows how and why these projects got approved they have to now produce those documents to the upper house and they'll be produced in a fortnight's time and we will then i can assure you have another round of transparency good well we can look forward to that thank you david that's <laughs> very helpful <laughs> it's, like uh, the, the, it's like the magic pudding of um cooked up grants funding every time i think we've finished it it grows back again so, yeah, um, like like yeah. you say, the whole thing seems to have become just a, a recipe for corruption and disaster. And 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 it was always that you know my understanding of it as a younger you know a younger man was that it was all about you know emergency and and sideline issues. It seems to have become the core of funding, as you say, for local government and for many state government projects. And really, it needs to be put onto a a much more sort of regular footing, doesn't it? Whereby those those funds are issued, you know, across the board yeah. without condition. Yeah those uh, or, or with only normal well i mean this is what our committee is going to grapple with we're going to deliver the first report um sometime around about mid-march mm. um and it'll be looking at the stronger communities fund and the experience in local government and be indicating how we think the uh the system should be reformed and i will say this you know um, i'm a green mp chairing it we have labor mps on board we have um, shooters and fishers mp on board we have opposition, uh, sorry, government, you know, national and liberal MPs on on, on, on the committee. And um, yeah, they, they can all speak for themselves in due course. But I'll say this, nobody has been trying to stop us to our work. I think across the board, people are troubled, deeply troubled by what they've seen. And and I think our committee is is trying as best we can to get to the truth of it. And, um, and you know, I give credit to those other MPs from across the political spectrum are working with me on this to, to try and actually work out a pathway forward. And, and I think a big part of that pathway forward is stopping having 
all of the money, so much of the money being handed out in grants, which allow for um, two things to happen. First of all, they allow for a whole lot of political credit to be obtained by the government of the day when they manipulate the announcement of them. You know, you've always got a minister there or a coalition MP there when they're announcing the grants and, yeah. you know, a positive yeah. management. But then you've also got a, a very, very dysfunctional relationship between the councils and the community groups and others who are desperately in need of the grant funding and the state government of the day because they're not willing to criticise them, not willing to critique them. Because if you get them offside, suddenly yeah, the money dries up. So. You know, yeah. you can get completely um, destroyed. And then we've seen how politicised they'll be. So it it's very unhealthy in our democracy. Certainly removes the concept of checks and balances, doesn't it? It certainly removes the, the separation of it's powers. It's about checks. Yes, <laughs> checks and no balances. Well put. Absolutely sure. <laughs> Well, um, look, okay, thank you for that, uh, David. I'll, I'll impose upon you to find, to keep us up to date with what's happening in a fortnight when you get that uh, that big document dump and you've managed to wade through it for us. Um, I was going to just mention quickly before we wrap up, because I know you're a busy man and we've got time limits, but um, you've been out in Gumbungir country. You've been out visiting forests. Uh, what have you found? What's going on uh, that you've seen out there? Well, I mean, you know, up on the... Up on Gumbanya country, been out there with those forest protectors. They're desperately keen to um, stop their country. You know, their forests full of deeply um, spiritual and important um, sacred sites and song lines being just literally ripped apart by industrial scale logging. And and thankfully, you know, we're getting that wonderful um, joining together of the environmental movement and these powerful. Um, First Nations forest protectors coming together. And I think it's a really powerful movement that we're seeing there. So I've been out on the forest, we've seen them. They've got some legal challenges happening, but they're also building a movement against mm. this, you know, appallingly wasteful destruction of our forests. Mm. Um, and the good news is I'm seeing similar similar movements being built, similar connections being built in the, in the forestry campaign in the southeast of the state as well. Mm. And um, I think it's becoming increasingly apparent even in this, you know, totally dysfunctional workplace that I have, the New South Wales Parliament, um, increasingly apparent that uh, native forest logging's time has ended. You yeah. know, so much of the forests were, were, were destroyed in those fires. You talk with the communities who are now seeing the prospect of logging resuming in those pits of the forest that weren't destroyed by the fires and that they are, um, they are committed like never before to stop it. And to protect the forests and as, as these um campaigners said to me just a fortnight ago when i was down in the south coast um out the back of batman's bay where they're threatening to restart the logging these um these forest um, protectors and activists locals they said um the fires have changed everything the fires have changed everything here they cannot do this we won't let them come back we won't let them destroy what, what was left and um and you know i'm getting that sentiment around Around the um, around the state, um, I think now is the time for us to build that forest, that, that forest campaign. Yeah. Um, and so I'd urge anyone listening, you know, get in contact with local First Nations peoples, find out what's happening in your local patch, and come and join us um, protecting our forests. Good on you, David. Call to action. Well done. <laughs> well Good, said. Good speaking. Yeah. Thank you very Good much day. for all your time and energy and uh, your great work in general. So we'll, we'll talk again soon. Hey. Yeah, cheers. Good job. So, 
Did you hear the one about the quarter of a billion dollars that walked out of New South Wales Parliament and nobody blinked an eye? Well, Ed, true story. That was David Shoebridge filling us in. No joke. Thanks to David, uh, those uh, rorts have been exposed and he is still on the job this week. There have been more revelations in the upper house uh, committees, in the uh, the, uh, the committees for uh, public accountability and uh, the also in estimates. Uh, there's not just David Shoebridge but others of uh, the crossbench, the Greens and independents there have been putting the government under the spotlight and finding there's a fair bit of festering filth uh, lurking around there. Anyway, we will keep reporting on it. It's a huge story. Uh, it'll be, there'll be more on that next week. Uh, so stay tuned to Environmental As Anything. Also a classic. Uh, is uh, Eve Sinton and the Fossil Fool Bulletin. If you haven't uh, already, you should get yourself a copy of the Fossil Fool Bulletin. Really manages to uh, give the wide overview, the broadest overview of the state of play within the, uh, the with the Fossil Fools. Uh, Eve's on the line right now. Eve, uh, are you with me? Good afternoon, Sean. <laughs> So, Fossil Fool Bulletin, again, jam-packed this month. I don't know how you keep up with all of this, but there's an amazing quality of stories going on. Uh, we're just going to run through the first few pages because, I mean, it's a 13-page it's a document and uh, crammed with info, but uh, AGL's gas import plan draws fire. What's happening in, uh, in, with AGL? Well, AGL, of course, Australia's biggest greenhouse gas polluter, uh, wants to import gas, uh, and they want to put a terminal at a little town called Crip Point in uh, on the Mornington Peninsula near Melbourne. Um, what they would do is anchor a huge, you know, about 350-metre-long ship there, which acts as a um, as a receiver for imported gas. They 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 bring another tanker alongside it, pump the gas from one to the other, and it gets uh, it's, it's in a liquid form, and it has to be regasified, and then put into a pipeline that will go to Pakenham um, to supply Melbourne with uh, liquid national gas. Or um, by the you know it'll be um, de unliquefied by the time they get it. Anyway, this mm -hmm. is um, Crip Point's a nice little place where it used to be fairly industrial. Um, it, it's uh, turned into a, a little peaceful town now and people have been retiring there and they really do not want to see these huge ships just offshore. Uh, it's right next to a Ramsar-listed wetland, which means, you know, it, it's a very fragile environment and there's huge uh, potential for massive pollution from this operation. Oh, unbelievable. Is this what Scummo meant by the, uh, the gas-let recovery, was it? Well, yes, indeed. Uh, although AGL have been thinking about this even since before that plan, and of course the, the federal government probably likes it, but even their local federal MP is Greg Hunt, the health minister, and even it, he's come out against it because it's so unpopular in his electorate. Wow. And all the local councils have come out strongly against it. And there's a little community group called Save Western Port, and they've been working really hard over the last 12 months or so trying to stop this from going ahead. 
Well, good on them. What a, what a uh, you know a behemoth. What a what a what an enormous monster to take on AGL. Uh, the idea that we're, as as a major uh, gas exporter, Australia would be importing gas must be uh, must be boggling some minds out there. Well, it's crazy because you could have gas tankers passing each other in the ocean off our shores. Um, it, it is really crazy and there's really no need for it. Um, so it, they tried to, AGL tried to get it through without even environmental assessment, but fortunately the community have forced them to, to go through a you know, proper assessment process and there's just been some hearings lately where people have been able to come out with their objections. Well, I can understand. And, I can actually understand why AGL wouldn't want any environmental assessment because any kind of environmental assessment of this would have to come out uh, very strongly against it, wouldn't it? Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's going. It uses huge amounts of seawater. It'll be sucking in all those tiny marine life, like krill and so on, um, and spitting them out dead um, in, with chlorine polluted water. And also, it's very close to residential areas, and these enormous. Um, LNG tankers are potential floating bombs. You know, if something goes wrong, mm. uh, the explosive potential is just mind-boggling and be well beyond the capacity of any local fire brigade volunteers to cope with a, um, a gas explosion. Absolutely terrifying prospect. Well, yeah. you know, that, that terrifying prospect, uh, you know, it offset against the concept of the gas industry cutting its workforce by 10%. Again, this is our gas-lit recovery, apparently. Yeah, this is crazy. In the same time that they've been getting absolutely millions from the government for the gas-lit recovery, they have actually cut their workforce by 10%. Uh, this is the Australia Institute has uh, checked the figures. Um, you know, so we've got Inpex, Woodside, Santos, Oil Search, Chevron, Shell, Origin and ExxonMobil have uh, all cut hundreds of jobs. In the case of Shell, they're slashing thousands of jobs worldwide. Um, so it, around, it, it comes out to a 10% cut in the workforce in the last 12 months. Wow, that's a, a 9,000 jobs slashed from Shell. I just looked at the list there and it's, that's impressive globally. Uh, yeah. yeah, we don't know how many of those jobs are local, although I think there is something coming out about now saying with yeah. some local figures, but I just don't have it. But Woodside, um, Woodside, 1,200 jobs uh, re locally, and Santos, who, again, are, have just uh, got their disgraceful Narrabai project uh, rammed through, 150 job cuts to celebrate. That's right. So, you know, and they won't be employing a lot of people out at Narrabai. Uh, you know, gas is a very... Uh, low job yield industry. Uh, I think people working in the gas industry in Australia account to 0.02 of the workforce. <laughs> <laughs> so the government would have been a lot better off to be investing in something like health well, or education services, things like that. that the koala led. The koala led recovery is what we're calling for here. Well, yes, <laughs> that's what we should be having. Um, so, yeah. so there's also uh, fears of uh, of the, uh, the 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 NT fracking uh, reporting on the lack of diversity amongst newly discovered crustaceans living in underground aquifers. Uh, what's going on there? Yeah, well, this is a report from an organisation called Gezera, which is uh, a joint 
CSIRO and gas industry outfit. So um, people have often treated their reports with a bit of scepticism. However, they've had to admit that they've found these tiny little creatures called stegofauna that live in underground water systems. Um, And the the genetic diversity is very limited, which shows that all those underground aquifers are very close interconnected. So if if somebody drills through one, fracks it and has an accident, um, and any pollution gets into the surrounding groundwater, it's going to go a long way. all around precious places like uh, the Mataranka Springs, for example, which are extremely beautiful hot springs, yep. um, they would be highly at risk of pollution from any uh, oil and gas activity. Always found it particularly strange since I spent a few months in the Territory a couple of years ago when I realised that they were completely dependent upon the groundwater and the aquifers and uh, they, they, they can't... You know, anything that goes into them is going to end up coming out of their drinking water taps, for sure. Yeah, that's right. And, um, you know, so huge impact on local communities, on agriculture. Um, It's just a really bad idea to be mucking around with these kind of fragile underground systems. It's amazing, though. The blind shrimps, translucent tails, the 11 mysterious new species we found in potential fracking sites. It's, it's, It's quite a story. It is, and the, you know they're very tiny creatures. A lot of them are only a millimetre or two in size. Um, uh, yeah, really fascinating. So, if even the gas industry subsidised research is showing the dangers, we just hope they take it to heart. Mm, mm. Well, let's hope, eh? Look, we're, we've passed page four and I was going to stop there, but I can't resist New South Wales considering vast new gas exploration in far west. Lock the Gate Alliance alarmed about New South Wales Berejiklian governments considering opening up large parts of the far west to the state for fracking. Yeah, that's right. Out as far as Broken Hill, Cobar, um, and that's all um, unconventional gas, so it would mean fracking. Um, again, this is an area that's you know got very limited water resources, and fracking consumes enormous amounts of water, and 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 it spits out enormous amounts of of very hazardous polluted water. Mm. Not to mention the methane gas escapes and so on. So, yeah, yeah this is a pretty awful idea, mm. and. And, yeah, it's a kind of follow-on from Santos if they get out there and get going and narrow by the pressures on to go through the west. Yeah, the community protectors were saying before the uh, Narrabri gas, uh, you know, project got rammed through that it was uh, it was the thin edge of the wedge and here we are seeing the uh, the next stage and again uh, we've got uh, got the minister for energy and environment uh, Matt Keane making you know very good ground on the renewables front but here we have the uh, the other side of the coin it looks like yeah that's right i mean you know Matt Keane is um, very fills you with hope mm. <laughs> but uh, he's not popular with uh, the more pro-fossil fuel side of, um, of politics. Well, he's Minister for Energy. He must have some say in this. We're going to have to get Matt back on the show, I think, and ask him what's going on here. Yes, that's right. I mean, and this story doesn't quote him at all, so I'm not sure what his 
Mm. I saw uh, a headline which uh, may have come out, it was only yesterday, I think it might have been, or even maybe this morning, it's, it gets to be a bit of a blur sometimes, but the uh, uh, Victorian uh, constitutional ban on fracking is to be extended to acid, uh, uh, you know, acid uh, extraction, you know, extraction of uh, gas by uh, acidification of the, 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 uh, uh, the rock strata. Have you seen anything on that? Yeah, I did, I did spot the headline this morning, I think. Um, it sounds like really good news. Yep. Um, so, yeah, you know, Victoria is certainly taking the dangers seriously. I mean, which is ADL's excuse for wanting to import gas there. <laughs> um, but, yeah, it does sound like some progressive news in that respect. Yep. Absolutely. Well, it's good to to, uh, to wrap it up with a little bit of uh, of a positive note. I, we cannot possibly make it through all of the amazing information you've included in the Fossil Fuel Bulletin. People are going to have to go and look it up and download it themselves um, from your website, fossilfuel.com.au. Uh, we have got a link up on the Environmental As Anything Facebook page. People can share it around from there if they like. Thank you, Eve, for coming in and joining us and keeping us up to speed with, uh, with the important work you're doing. Good. Well, it was great to talk to you, Sean. That was Eve Sinton from the Fossil Fuel Bulletin, just running us through some of the headlines there and uh, sounding uh, like there's, uh, you know, it, it, the continued madness, the desperation of the, uh, the fossil fools seems to never, uh, never end. Well, here we are in part of Double Duke State Forest. It's the next part of the Banyaba koala population proposed for logging. So we've been in here checking out the forest to uh, assess what conditions it's in because it was badly burnt in 2019 and you can see how the forest is suffering from that. Quite a few big old giant hollow bearing trees have been burnt down uh, and quite a number of trees have been killed by the fires or severely affected. And the concern is if they go in here now and log, they're going to be compounding the degradation from the fires, compounding the impact on, on the uh, fauna and their immense impacts that have occurred here. Uh, this forest cannot afford any further degradation. It's been logged in the past about 20 years ago and, uh, and then burnt recently. If they log it again now, they're going to do permanent and irrevocable damage to it and to the fauna populations in here. So we want to see this forest uh, uh, protected from logging. It just should not occur. Um, and there's uh, species in here like the um, uh, the black striped wallaby. And our black striped wallaby needs dense patches of habitat as its daytime uh, refugia, and then it forages out in more open country. Now, the concern here, of course, is that the forest has been so, so badly burnt, there's not much dense uh, refugia left for the black striped wallaby, and at the very least, they should be doing a thorough survey of this area to identify where those core bits of black striped wallaby habitat are, that this whole population will be depending upon. It's an outlying population. Uh, it was only recorded here recently, um, and it's an endangered species in New South Wales. It used to have prescriptions to protect that, that key refugia, but they've all been removed now. So there's no protection for this endangered species in New South Wales anymore. And for such a, an important outlying population, it's just essential that it be looked for and protected uh, appropriately, as, do, as we need to look for quite 
koalas and other significant species. Uh, and, you know, the uh, most important here is the, the hollow-bearing trees for our ho- hollow-dependent fauna because there's a, only a small number left, relatively speaking, and a lot of those were lost in the fire. Any left are uh, immensely important and the recruitment trees needed to replace them as they age. Well, they, they, they don't make money out of logging uh, native forests anyway. Um, uh, they get a lot of subsidies uh, for, through other means to prop up their money-making on native forests. But since the fires, they've lost so much resource, and yet they're still trying to pretend there's as much there as there was before and still got this overcommitment of resources to the logging industry. So they're logging totally unsustainably. They're, it's not economic. We're not making money out. It's a public resource. We're not getting any, any rent or return on this public resource for them uh, using, abusing and degrading it. Um, look, it, it just shouldn't happen anymore. It's just, it's just uh, ridiculous, really. It's running down our, our wildlife populations and our public resources for really private profit. Regular listeners to the show and indeed anybody who's tuned into the environment movement uh, of the, the north coast of New South Wales will have recognised Dylan Pugh there speaking about uh, Double Duke State Forest. That was uh, a, an action that uh, both Naomi Shine and myself were at uh, only last well, Friday week, wasn't it, Amy? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so uh, you saw uh, Double Duke. What was your impression? Hammered. Mm. Hammered. We had the fortune to walk through a group of old growth um, habitat trees that would be classed by forestry as habitat trees and not able to be cut down or they have to keep five or eight per hectare. Mm. Um, uh, and then the recruitment trees, they don't have to keep anymore, which are the next, you know, 80-year-old 80, 80 trees that would become habitat trees in the next 100 years. Recruitment trees are a bit inconvenient to keep because they're the ones that are straight Quality. and uh, old enough to log and not so old that they've become too gnarly mm. to log. Yeah. So they like to take the habitat recruitment trees if they can, mm. which leaves nothing just, for the future. Well, there's nothing there anyway. It's mm. not worth crashing through that old for, the forest mm. and what's left of it. There's so much sky. And the miracle is the understory and the um, small uh, flora were, were f- fairly high in native species, still a lot of the, the sedge and the grasses because there's a, it's it's sort of a semi you know the water's rolling off there all the time in the wet season and there's a lot of beautiful uh, native species in the undergrowth and there wasn't a lot of weed incursion miraculously because there's so much canopy missing mm. so much canopy missing so I understand okay, you can see that there's food on the ground for those black striped wallabies but if you go crashing there through with machines they're not only taking down the remaining few remaining trees oh. they're crashing over all this beautiful undergrowth and habitat for the wallabies be so crazy stuff. No, that's right. It's a, it just demonstrates again how we just have to protect our native forests uh, and, le- and get the get that logging out of there. Mm. I noticed uh, one of the things I noticed was that uh, forestry, uh, the forest corps have already uh, already locked that forest up. Uh, you know, like enclosed it off for uh, general public usage. So the the opportunities for ecotourism and for general recreational enjoyment of that forest are being uh, hampered already before long mm. before they've started uh, even even attempting to log in there. That's right. So it seems to be they've got this blanket blanket prescription of keeping people out logging under martial law. Seems to be standard procedure these days. So is it Friday next week, the Friday the 13th of yep. Uh, March? Yep, Friday. Uh, Fridays for Forest. That's right. Look up the North East Forest Alliance Facebook page or the Save Banyaba Koalas Facebook page and there's, a, there's an event there to invite all your friends to. Uh, get all your friends to come along and it was a beautiful day out. Yeah, it, see it for yourself. It's it's 
it's lovely. It was a, it was a, yeah. I was quite impressed with. It. I mean, like you say, it's been trashed, but there's still an enormous amount of, uh, of beauty and, and and you know some di- real diversity in that in that old in that uh, you know regrowth forest uh, that that's well worth seeing. Absolutely, some beautiful gum trees and quite diverse species. We were looking at black blood, black butt <laughs> and bloodwood yep. tree um, uh, ecological community, and we were heading for but missed a um, a, a grey gum and another gum a grey box mm. that are koala habitat. We were looking particularly for the koala habitat trees, but we didn't quite make it. Mm. We're going to try again on um, coming Friday. It was an interesting uh, a sandy hill, and uh, there was at the top of the sandy hill. I was reminded of some of the Sydney heathland type communities. There were uh, the banksias and uh, and other kinds of sort of more heathland type plants in that sandy uh, hilltop mm. environment. Uh, which uh, so yeah, definitely some some interesting diversity. We stopped and had a, a really pleasant picnic uh, there in the forest with Dylan, and and uh, he was able to explain to us so uh, you know some of the ecological uh, nooks and crannies that we might have missed. Yes, and there was a wattle there flowering, even though it's not winter. I thought most wattles flower in winter, but there was a flowering one there. Yeah, and the bloodwood were flowering, weren't they? Yeah. It was a really lovely day out. So yep, join us uh, next Friday, people. It's uh, it, it's it was a great day out. There was it was at least a dozen of us, and it really makes a difference. What happened with Myrtle State Forest was a bunch of people got out there and uh, had some picnics and had some fun and took some photos of the forest and posted them up onto social media, etc. And uh, consequently, that logging has not proceeded all year. So uh, that kind of fun activity can make a real difference and save the world, perhaps. Yes. <laughs> yeah, post up our photos. Anyway, uh, what else is happening around here? You reckon there's a, a there's a chock-a-block agenda for this oh, week coming up? Well, everybody's come to life after the COVID slumber and the, the peak of summer, Christmas, New Year, and there's scads of Extinction Rebellion, uh, really great events, uh, online events and mm-hmm. webinars and... Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I'll have a go at them later. And uh, there's local events too, particularly on the environment. But I was going to talk about um, some things that we missed not being on air last week was the couple of hot news items that were getting around was uh, the 19 Australian ecosystems already collapsing uh, in Australia. So there was a Guardian article and ABC News article uh, Leading scientists working across Australia and Antarctica have described 19 ecosystems that are collapsing due to the impact of humans and warned urgent action is required to prevent their complete loss. Mm. Uh, 38 scientists from 29 universities and government agencies um, detailed the degradation of coral reefs, arid outback deserts, tropical savanna, the waterways of the Murray-Darling Basin, mangroves in the Gulf of Carpentaria, forests stretching from the rainforests of the far north to Gondwana-era conifers in Tasmania. And it extended beyond the continent to include sub-Antarctic tundra of World Heritage-listed Macquarie Island and moss beds in the East Antarctic. So it's yeah. not very healthy. No, I saw that article too and I'd be interested to try to uh, chase down some of the authors and see if we can bring them on to the show Yeah, uh, to talk about that. It seemed uh, particularly pertinent with the Environmental Protection and Biodiversity Conservation Act having just been reviewed and mm. having been found to be a gross failure mm. and then the scummo regime coming out and promising basically to gut it even further and to prevent it from having any real effect in terms of protecting our environment and here we have the these very credible scientists coming out and having done very serious assessment of the whole, uh, you know, review of the all of the evidence saying that 19 different ecosystems on absolutely on the verge Last of Last legs. Yeah. Mm. So that 
pretty terrifying, really. We really yes. have uh, an urgent problem at hand that we need to ta- pull out all the stops. Yes. For. Yeah, for sure. Uh, and the other interesting thing that was completely quite mind-blowing uh, getting around um, was uh, the Naked Scientists drew my attention back to it. They're, they appear on Radio National. Um, I think they're um, Canadian. Or, oh, no, they're oh. from the UK. Yeah, people get away with being naked on radio, don't they? Yes, yeah. Naked yeah. Scientists. And their podcasts are brilliant. I often catch them late at night on Radio National. And fascinating, fascinating. Um, and they... Um, spoke about the magnetic poles. Now, back in the days when I used to read Nexus magazine and was something I was going, is that a conspiracy theory about um, the magnetic poles shifting on Earth? On yes. Earth? And no, that's real. That's real. And mm. um, it happened around 40, 41 to 42,000 years ago mm. and um, it, it resulted in humans having to... Uh, well, the, the the very atmosphere started to break down. It was ionised and mm. so there were aurora borealis type electromagnetic um, lights in the sky all over mm. the planet and there was um, uh, epic thun- uh, the lightning storms and humans literally had to shelter in caves and mm. hence there was a burgeoning of cave art at that time. Oh. And even the iconic thing of a hand uh, with ochre blasted over the back of it. The o- humans were using the ochre for sunscreen. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. Because as the um, something molten happening in the earth causes um, these... Uh, yeah, there's a, there's a core of, of, of magma mm. in, the, in the centre of the earth. There's an iron, there's a, there's a central uh, uh, iron, uh, you know, which is the core of the earth. And it, it's, it's magnetised mm. and uh, it does flip at intervals, at yeah. uh, long, you know, intervals like that. And, and it, you know, with, it was that molten core which does protect us. It, it creates the ionosphere, the magnetosphere. Mm. Uh, yes. which, which protects the Earth from... Solar uh, radiation. Solar radiation. The wind, solar winds just blowing our atmosphere away, uh, like Mars. Uh, yes. You know, this is where interplanetary exploration is really important for the environment and for us uh, to understand our own planet is when we got to, got to Mars and started to understand what was going on there, we recognised that there was no molten core, no magnetosphere, and that's why the atmosphere was blown away and that's mm. why the oceans, which once dominated Mars, have mm. also been essentially blown away, evaporated mm. off the planet and gone, so it's a dry husk of a planet now, Yes. Uh, if, if, if any life, and merely traces. But mm. um, so, so if it ever happened again, you have decades of this um, ionisation of the atmosphere while the pole shifts and shifts again and shifts again and then stabilises mm. at, a, at a positive and negative pole, north and south pole, and it created uh, climate change and vegetation change and probably killed um, large mammals in Australia at the time. And mm. um, they've been studying um, cowrie rings, 40,000 years old cowrie has this habit of being um, um, fossilised mm. in peat um, occurrences in New Zealand and they can dig it up and they go, wow, this is 40,000-year-old cowrie and they were looking at the rings and wow. they could make, because of the composition of the rings, they could make a lot of understandings about all kinds of things mm. that happened 41,000 years right, ago. So they can test the magnetic poles. And so that's right. It's not unusual for the magnetic poles to flip so that, you know, the North Pole becomes the South Pole uh, over some period oh, of time. Amazing. So flipping would be probably, you know, take more than, you know, like years or decades even to perhaps even centuries to, to complete. But mm. uh, that's a blink of an eye in geological time. That's right. Yeah. So fascinating mm. stuff. Fascinating, yes, yeah. indeed. 
and uh, gave, I found the phone that has all these uh, separate components that you can build it yourself and you can replace all the different components, oh. including the software. I think they recommend Linux. Yep. Um, and it's a Fairphone. Oh, the Fairphone. Yes, that was the one yes. I was looking at too. Uh, however, uh, ethicalconsumer.org, um, under their technology and mobile phone section, have uh, said that it's not... Fairphone might be good on all that stuff, but it's not good on the toxic pollutants in the production of the phones and haven't promised to phase out the toxic s- stuff that they use in the plastics. So mm. it's good and it's... Um, but, I mean, all mobile phones are incredibly toxic in their production, I'm mm. afraid. Mm. Mm. No, it's a... Oh, well, as I said at the beginning of the show, thank you for looking that up, by the way. Mm. That's uh, very, very helpful. <laughs> and I'm sure everyone out there who likes to find the most sustainable product even uh, will, will be interested to hear about the Fairphone. Yes. We'll do some more on it. Maybe we'll get somebody from Fairphone uh, to come into the show and give us a bit of a, uh, a talk. And we, we have talked to people in the past for about, uh, 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 you know, planned obsolescence and right to repair, and maybe we'll be able to find some experts to, uh, to give us a bit more advice. But that's really a good lead. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah, shows I'm listening. You are. You're right on the job. Um, and back to local news, um, there's a lot about development, isn't there? There's mm. the, the uh, Widgible Wireable woman who's opposed to a development and it looks like we may be able to stop further development above the waterhole in Gundarimba Creek, Creek by putting in a lot of submissions when they want to do the next phase. The current building phase is underway mm. and we're looking at the care of the creek, the care and rehabilitation of the creek. So that's locally in Ganella Bar and there's a new development that's causing a lot of um, attention in um, uh, the uh, Tweed and it's um, uh, Nightcap on Minjungbal and my mm, webpage is stuffing up on me. Here it is. Uh so it's actually a um, it's a de- quite a big development, and I will I've reposted the um, information that I have on it. And there's people from Northern Rivers Guardians have a great website. They haven't put stuff up on their website about it yet, but they're certainly posting on their um, Facebook page about the development, how to make a submission against it, which I think is due. Um, by the 14th of March. Right. Um, so I've posted those links on our Facebook page too. So um, And there's a YouTube video to, for, for us to check out more information. Um, it's uh, obviously something we should look at. Great. Well, look, I, while you're pausing and looking at your uh, list, <laughs> I've just had a text message uh, come in from a, a listener, one of our dedicated fans, Lydia. Thanks very much for tuning in. As usual, Lydia, always lovely to have you with us. With us. Um, and uh, just checking that you can mention again the public meetings to bring back rail with the new not-for-profit railway company, Northern Rivers Rail Limited. The meetings are in Bangalore Bowling Club at 6pm on Wednesday, 10th of March, and at Mullumbimby X Services Club at 6pm on Wednesday, 17th of March. Mayor Simon Richardson and Tamara Smith will be guest speakers. For more info, uh, email admin at northernrivers.com rail.com.au There you go, Lydia. No, sorry, can't mention that. Uh, We've already done it. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well done. Thanks very much. And we're always, always lovely to hear from uh, listeners who have got uh, environmental concerns and activities, actions and events coming up that they'd like us to to be able to publicise here on the show. Yeah, great. 
Of course, you can go to our Facebook page and uh, you can also check out our podcast while we're plugging, you know, our various Um, channels. Don't forget to listen to us every Saturday, 2 to 5 (laughs) p.m. That's an event. Um, Yeah, as I said before, there's lots of Extinction Rebellion events. Um, There's a National Extinction Rebellion Rebellion Gathering to get ready to mobilise Australia for the, the march rebellion the 22nd of march there's um most capital cities are are having extinction rebellion um occupy type movements um from the 22nd of march um so i've posted up all kinds of stuff on on, in the events list um i'm trying to get that to roll um so we should run through them for those who aren't on facebook yes so there's the national gathering which is sunday tomorrow uh, sunday the 7th at 3 p.m um, there's um, an online one by David Spratt explaining the science of the climate emergency. That's on the 10th of March at 7pm. Welcome to Extinction Rebellion if you're new. Our DNA online, 10, uh, the 10th of March at 7pm. Um, Reasons to be cheerful, an evening with Roger Hallam, which has been um, put onto as a Facebook event by Ipswich, um, burning it pink or something. There, wow. uh, Extinction Rebellion political party in Ipswich of all places. <laughs> That's great. Good on them. Yes. Go Ipswich. Yeah. And there's a, there's um, uh, uh, also more Welcome to Extinction Rebellion ones on the 13th of March. But well, D- David Hallam doesn't often have reasons to be cheerful or he doesn't seem to, to share them with others. That's that's uh, That's got to be a good thing. I know because he's the, also the one saying we've got six to 12 months. We've got to turn this ship around. Mm. You know, we've got to stop mm. it with the pollution, the climate pollution and really turn things around and mm. keep it turned around and, yeah, right. you know. Otherwise, it's not good. 19 ecosystems on the verge of collapse here in Australia, people. It's uh, it's an emergency. That's and right. so, yeah, Extinction Rebellion doing great work in highlighting the emergency and uh, sort of pushing it into people's faces so they have to make a choice about uh, whether they're going to ignore it or actually do something about it. That's right. Mm. And uh, they're even getting ready for COP26 in Glasgow, Go. Glasgow, Scotland, in November this year. So there's an online group um, called National Gathering 2021. Mm. And um, even though it's uh, 8.30pm to 4am, <laughs> because it's obviously on Scottish time, yeah. <laughs> but they're inviting everybody all over the world to talk about what to do for COP26 and how to make that a, um, a big impact. Well, absolutely mm. essential, isn't it, that mm. we get behind that uh, COP26 uh, meeting. There's There's been some huge progress over the five years since Paris and uh, that's really good, but we're still a long way from the 1.5 degrees uh, uh, minimum warming that could possibly, <laughs> you know, uh, sustain a human civilization in the form that we could recognise. Yeah, yeah. So turn this ship. Mm. Uh, and there's some other great local events apart from our forest one on Friday. Um, this coming uh, Tuesday from 1.30 to 3.30 uh, is a, group, a meeting, a gathering, Mums for Effective Climate Action Now in the Lismore Quad. Yeah. Um, it's basically a picnic or a sit-in, bring signs, uh, a protection action, sitting in the covered area in front of the gallery, just a role model uh, post climate change thinking and actions are what's urgently required. What a beautiful thing! That's lovely, isn't and that's, um, it? Peach Darvel has posted that up, and Good on her. recommend everyone to just if you you know with the little ones toddle along and sit sit in the in the quad. Right. Lovely place to sit. Um, and then um, on behalf of Seaside Scavenge and Luke Stone, there's a spring into scavenge on, at Riverside Park next Saturday, March the thirteenth, from four pm to six pm. Um, keen to connect with your community, 
clean up the area and listen to some funky live tunes while spring into scavenge is coming to town. This is a waste education event where the litter you collect becomes a currency to purchase pre-loved clothes, books and more that have been donated by your local community. Ah, and it, yeah, and they've got idea. prizes. He sent me a list of prizes. Um, just wonderful stuff, I reckon. Have you got that? Have yeah, got the, list? the list of prizes, yep, from Luke Stone. It's great of him. He's All right, here we go. Come along, phone. Um, including vouchers for a dinner at the terrace, a massage, Norpa shoes, <laughs> special Norpa shoes, and uh, an, a, a, term, a term of gymnastics at NCG, which I'm not sure where that is. Norpa shoes ah. and event, maybe. Maybe the Norpa shoes is an event. Right, okay. okay. <laughs> so great prizes, though. Local, yeah, interesting. That's awesome. Yeah. yeah you a lot of support there from the local community, of course. That's yeah. great. So uh, get along. I do bring a glove, bring your gloves, a bag to collect the trash in and uh, sun protection, although after 4 p.m. it's not so bad Fun now. way to make the world a better place. That sounds great. Beautiful. Yay. And you've mentioned the Northern Rivers Railway Action Oh, sorry if I've stolen your thunder there. I uh, I just thought I should deal with that while Definitely. I had it in front of me. That's right. <laughs> um, and there's a global conference, I mean, uh, for a nuclear-free and renewable energy future, 10 years since Fukushima. So that's an online event that I would um, be encouraging people to see if they can check in with. 10 years since Fukushima. Yeah. Amazing, isn't it? Yeah. Time flies by. Yes. And it's now spread throughout the oceans of the world, the Fukushima yep. nuclear accident. Everywhere yep. there are fish, there is now uh, waste product from the Fukushima reactor. It's been pouring out of it ever since. Poor old Japan, it's responsible for the accident, has failed to make a decision for zero nuclear power and is lagging far behind the rest of the world. It was, so the conference um, is hoping to inform the people of Japan and global of global trends promoting an energy shift to renewables, obviously, mm. while also sharing information with people around the world of the current situations and the challenges in Japan after the disaster at the TEPCO Fukushima Daiichi nuclear power plant. They're still dealing with it. They've mm. got those uh, that big tubs of radioactive water and oh, all the yeah, water no. spewing into the ocean yeah. and it's an absolute disaster and it gets uh, it gets very little precious little attention and there's there's the japanese having been nuked more than any other country in the world still struggling to deal with their nuclear uh, waste issues and here we are uh, probably selling them the uranium that went into yes. those uh, those power plants and 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 dragging our heels on trying to get them the uh, the the shiploads of, uh, of 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 hydrogen that they need the shiploads of ammonia that they need to be able to ship transla- transfer their economy over into a, a renewable prosperity. Yeah, not gas, but uh, that's so yeah. When you eat your uh, glow in the dark fish, people just remember we've done our bit to create <laughs> it. <laughs> oh, it's horrific. Yes. Well, speaking of trashing the world and patriarchy and stuff, it is uh, uh, International um, Women's Day on March the 8th. So Liz Moore will be joining in on March for justice by having a rally for women on the 15th of March. So it will be as part of the International March for Justice. And that's not until the 15th of March at midday. 
Um, but it's this weekend that the Lismore Women's Festival is happening mainly at the Lismore City Hall and um, there's a great um, forum on um, tomorrow, Feminism, the Challenges Ahead, and uh, I think Maddie is on that pa- panel oh. with Deb and Lavender and um, Maddie will be making the point about, you know, the ecological justice and justice for women and Indigenous people and marginalised people and gay mm. people um, are, are the same topic you know we need a sort of eco-feminism an uh, uh, intersectional way forward that includes everyone and is has social justice and ecological justice at the forefront um, and, and feminism is for anyone really embracing that going forward to the future to turn the ship as we were saying so Absolutely. get along to some of the other events there's lovely things like uh, well-being um, well-being checks oh that's the women's uh, Lismore women's health and resource center five minute health check um, Chilean women's chant laughter yoga these are all on Sunday um, sound healing journey um, it's just lovely so they've got uh, more events Sunday and Monday yeah it's Sunday there's events uh, today this evening uh, women up front if you haven't seen Mandy Nolan and her mates, oh. Arlene Briggs, get along. That sounds like fun. <laughs> yeah. And then it's from uh, 10 a.m. on Sunday, there's a welcome ceremony and events for the rest of the day and Monday as well. Great. Fantastic. Well, that's, a, that's an exciting event to get along to. And, uh, you know, and, and there are no human rights for anyone as long as anyone's left behind. It's no. nobody, nobody can enjoy uh, actual uh, human rights until everybody does. No, that's right. Uh, I want to mention a new uh, independent journalist I found. Michael West tweeted, um, Pearls and Irritations, John Menandu's Public Policy Journal. And I've read some great articles on that. Oh, Pearls and Irritations, great. John Menandu's been around for a long time doing that, uh, various different forms of reporting, and now as an independent uh, 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 you know, blogger. Yes, uh, with other journos with him. It's with a great Michael website. Michael support is a terrific yeah, website, Yeah, it? so it's new to me and I'm sharing yeah. the joy of Pearls Thank and Irritations. You. Yes. Yeah, for independent journalism. Absolutely. More of it, the better. <laughs> so uh, is that it for the day? Oh, yes. Well, we're still looking for volunteers at the Lismore Environment Centre. If you think you can hack it down at the uh, bus station uh, in our eco shop and uh, info service. It's um, not too arduous down there. They don't, there's no no real torture going on. No, plenty of cups of tea, nice little eco shop, you know, mm. handing out bus timetables, reporting the toilet if it's dirty, you know. Oh, yeah. you know. I think there could be worse things to be doing <laughs> yeah. with, your, with your day. Yeah, like watering our little garden beds. Come get, along. Get to meet some lovely people who are all committed to uh, helping uh, build a better future for us all. Yeah, send us a message on our Lismore Environment Centre Facebook page. Good on you. Thanks, Naomi Shine. For, for shining on us today. No worries. That was Naomi Shine from the Lismore Environment Centre. And that was Environmental as Anything for another week. Thank you so much for joining us. It's been great to be here with you. As always, I hope that you will be gentle with yourself, be kind to each other, and remember we're all in this together. Join us again next week between 2 and 5 on Saturday. Uh, on River FM 92.9 or tune in anytime with our podcast uh, at Environmental as Anything, wherever you get good podcasts from. Please share, like and subscribe and we'll talk to you again in a week. Bye. Now to take us out with his new track called Sleep Australia Sleep. He's an Aussie icon joined by Alice Keith and Simon Nugent. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr Paul Kelly.
stay asleep The night is on the creek Shut out the noise all around Sleep as straight as sleep And dream of counting sheep Jumping in fields colored brown Are you looking for the courage to face the hard facts about our environmental crises? Do you want honest reporting on the global solutions that are at our fingertips? Would you like to know what simple, effective local actions you can take to make a positive difference to the state of the world today? Tune in to Environmental as Anything on 92.9 River FM every Saturday from 2 to 5 for all the news, interviews and analysis you need to make the future you want. For the future, we're hand in hand.